Hello, and welcome to the A Conversation with Speaker Series podcast from the Biederman Entertainment and Media Law Institute at Southwestern Law School. I'm your host, Orly Ravid, director of the Biederman Institute. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations with influential members of the entertainment, sports, and media law industries. Top-notch lawyers and other experts share their own journeys and provide insights into hot-button topics. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to not miss out on new episodes. In today's episode, we hear from law professor and practitioner Andrew J. Schwartzman, who's been on the front lines of the battle for the public interest soul of broadcasting at the United States Supreme Court and other forums for nearly 50 years. Andrew's represented civil rights, consumer, and other organizations in media and technology issues, collecting vast knowledge of the world of broadcasting. This conversation will answer questions regarding television after Netflix, 5G networks, and net neutrality. Did streaming kill the broadcast star? Let's find out in this conversation with Andrew J. Schwartzman, moderated by Professor Michael Epstein. I'm Professor Michael Epstein, and welcome. I'm uh, delighted to uh, have Andrew J. Schwartzman here. So, uh, We'll get right into the thick of it. Um, We've got lots of questions. Um, I titled this talk, uh, Streaming Killed the, you know, is streaming killing the broadcast star? Obviously, some of you who are old enough to remember the first music video played on MTV, of course, was, has video killed the radio star? The reason, obviously, for the title of this talk is that Andy, more than anyone I know, has fought the battle on the front lines for the consumer, for audiences, for the public interest in uh, the broadcast sector. And I, you know, I have to ask you, what's happened? Is, is the time for regulation of broadcasting passed? Well, first of all, thank you for for the very kind introduction and the opportunity to do this. And um, let me quibble with one thing you said in in framing the question, which is that um, I really don't particularly like the framing of this kind of work in terms of consumer interests. Because to me, uh, although I represent consumer groups and one of my clients is Consumers Union, uh, the term consumer connotes a kind of passive user, a recipient. And uh, so much of of what we've done over the years uh, has been focused on uh, the rights of the public to speak and to be heard and to receive information and to create a well-informed electorate. And that does not strike me as a passive consuming function, but rather an active one. And as we've moved into interactive technologies, it's all the more important. Uh, Net neutrality is about the ability to access information on the internet, uh, to download, as it were, but also to upload and to speak. So um, uh, even in the broadcast context, uh, I think that's very much the case. so the question you asked is, who cares about broadcasting, right? I mean, has it become a backwater? And, and the answer is no, 
uh, it continues to be very, very important over the year broadcasting. Uh, the growth and, and flourishing of program content uh, available uh, uh, through all sorts of different platforms and all sorts of different modalities doesn't change the fact that for local news and information, programming tailored to local needs over-the-air broadcasting continues to be a vital resource. And as daily newspapers uh, continue their secular decline, uh, uh, it becomes, in proportionate terms, more important because it is the profitable medium. And um, the profitable part is important. Uh, uh, advertisers want local broadcasting availabilities for, for their advertisements. It's a profitable business. It's in a long, slow, secular decline in all likelihood over the air broadcasting. Uh, but it continues to be the place that Local advertisers go. That's where car dealers go to reach most of the people in the community with, with their ads. Um, so it's important to business. Uh, it's important for local news and information. On the radio side, even though satellite radio tries to do local inserts and so forth, uh, and you've got ways and all that, traffic reports really matter. Local news really matters. If you want to know who to vote for, for city council or for mayor or whatever, it's large, that information is largely coming down a food chain from your newspaper if it still exists. And God, as an aside here, LA is an example of, what, of what's happening more and more, which is that some metropolitan dailies are really being taken over as uh, uh, quasi-charitable exercises or fully charitable in the case of Salt Lake City. Uh, 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 but broadcasting continues to be important. It is listened to. These daytime TV shows, your Ellen DeGeneres' and your Judge Judy's and so forth, have an audience. Yes, it's getting older. Uh, uh, I don't understand how young people watch these things on little screens rather than big TV sets, but that's because I'm an old guy. Uh, uh, there is... Uh, a, an important continuing vitality, and it is a profitable vitality. When, when Michael Bloomberg wants to saturate the country with advertising, he buys cable, he buys Facebook, but disproportionately buys local television. So there's a reason. It reaches everybody, and it is an incredibly powerful medium. So it hasn't lost its market value right but are you is is when you know you talk about and use this term the secular decline of broadcasting mm -hmm. uh, is it just a question of time where that market goes away as millennials and gen z and uh you know they 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 go on in life and, and I are used to the small so. screens I don't know. I suppose so. The fact is that while there's a lot of consolidation that makes me less than perfectly happy, uh, 
there are plenty of people who see in the near term and midterm a lot of profitability. The, the prices for broadcasting stations, on, well, radio as a whole, this is a com complicated, different story. Uh, uh, AM radio uh, uh, really is falling apart uh, uh, in, in major metropolitan uh, areas. Uh, uh, but uh, it, 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 the station values can, uh, can, can continue to, to grow. The cost per thousand for the advertising continues to go up because the, the audiences are, um, are, are considered more and more valuable. It's a very persuasive medium that way, and it is the way people get news and information. Most of the local news and information that people get is your newspaper.com or your TV station.com or in places like Los Angeles, KNX.com or your, your radio station.com. And that's the food chain that filters down to the local listservs and, 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 and the, the more locally oriented neighborhood. Right. That was the, the issue you, you had yeah. thought about in the, the Prometheus Radio Project case in the, in the Third Circuit. Right. That so much of this abundance, this diversity online, were basically legacy media companies with their presence. Uh, most people going to msnbc.com, for example, or cnn.com, or newyorktimes.com to get information. But has that begun to change with political coverage, for example, uh, you know, with, with the Axios and the, and the uh, you know, beginning with you know, Slate and other... There's very little local coverage, serious local journalism that's being done that isn't tied to a newspaper or a broadcasting station. Very, very, very little. It's different on the inside. Now, over time, I'm not prepared to predict uh, uh, as one, and maybe we'll get into this later, uh, who doesn't know what the people racing to 5G are racing to, uh, or whether there indeed really is a race at all, uh, we may develop uh, enough uh, uh, ability to, uh, to really move off of, uh, uh, off of uh, the need for over-the-air broadcasting and, and convert all of that to wireless and that spectrum that they're sitting on for television anyway uh, is uh, uh, could well be used for uh, for for you know wireless services and maybe supplant it but we'll have to see let me go back on one thing that I alluded to but didn't elaborate on because it's an important part of the piece about broadcasting certainly not for the people in this room or for me um, radio has a very special and vitally important role for a small but very important part of the American public. And that's people in rural and semi-rural areas. If you live 250 miles from Denver and you know, somewhere in, in the mountains of Colorado, uh, you may get satellite TV, uh, and get the Cheyenne stations and the Denver stations, and you may have a county weekly newspaper, maybe, but you have an incredibly robust group of a couple thousand small radio stations, ones that are too small for iHeartRadio to care about, 
mom and pop in many cases, small chains in other cases, regional chains and so forth, that provide an incredibly vital service. And a lot of these are AM because AM signals travel farther in, in, in that kind of scenario. Uh, uh, that is a very, very vital resource for a small but important part of the population. And just as we have made some public policy decisions, for better or for worse, that we care about preserving family farms, even if it's diseconomic, uh, and we care about bringing broadband to rural areas, which don't have it, uh, radio is a really, really important thing in those small communities. But again, the, the, the focus is, is, is the marketplace. There's this, I, I get the sense that there, you, you see a struggle within the marketplace. On the one hand, in markets that are not in areas that are rural, mm -hmm. uh, that are, that are mm -hmm. viable for aggregation, for example, either through uh, consolidation of ownership or in the syndication marketplace through bartering, for example, mm -hmm. to try to get, I mean, isn't the, the holy grail to try to get a national, uh, a national platform for you know, as many markets as you can for advertisers? Isn't that where the money's at? I mean, I understand the point about rural areas, but that seems to be running counter to the, the, the business goals of broadcast networks and syndicators. Well, for networks, yes. But you know, networks uh, don't own most of the local television and radio stations. Mm -hmm. And a very large proportion, I hate to do this in terms of business terms so much because it's much more than that, but it's what we're talking about. A large portion of the advertising inventory is local businesses that don't want to buy national advertising. Uh, and it's an important part of local commerce. So over-the-air broadcasting, which has the, the virtue of ubiquity, uh, continues to be very important. And concentration of control of that local radio into a few hands, or local television into a few hands, has some genuine public policy pitfalls to it. So maintaining that diversity. One other thing about broadcasting. Uh, it is an entry portal for people going into, uh, into the industries. It's, for, for many of them, the first job, whether it's you know, uh, in front of the camera or behind the camera, uh, uh, in business or otherwise, that's where many of the people who ultimately wind up on the streaming services and wind up in cable, that's where they get their start because they start out in these small local stations. And so, so it also is very much part of the, it's the reverse of a food chain, the, it's the upward uh, 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 move in, into uh, in, into uh, uh, greater circulation media it really starts with broadcasting. So having diversity in ownership and diversity in employment in those broadcasting stations, which we do have a regulatory peg for, is very important for that reason as well. So let's 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 accept the the value of broadcasting um, as a, a special, universal, ubiquitous, government-supported uh, uh, form of of media program distribution doesn't still need to be regulated on the basis of scarcity, uh, as we've seen, of course, in the Red Lion case from 1969. Uh, scarcity and the public ownership of the airwaves. Should it be singled out for special regulatory 
treatment now that so many have other options, not discounting the importance of broadcasting, but now, you know, do the numerical scarcity advocates have it right, that there really is so many other alternatives out there that maybe we shouldn't regulate broadcasting? Well, not that I, that I wanted it to be this way. Uh, the fact is that uh, there really is not that much regulation that we're talking about. This isn't some sort of heavy-handed burden that we're talking about. Uh, uh, the only real regulations that are operative are, first of all, content-neutral ownership regulation, which, which has the virtue of avoiding this uh, 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 singular voice problem. Uh, a little bit, which the FCC has just loosened up on to meet the special needs of children. Uh, and, uh, you know, broadcasting serves a very important special role for children. You know, the uh, EI programming that yeah. you may see. Uh, and that, too, is a food chain thing because that EI programming that, that, that the legislation, educational information programming that the uh, uh, legislation is stimulated, then goes into the inventory of the streaming services and so forth. Uh, so we have children regulation. We have sponsorship identification rules, uh, which help inform how the Federal Trade Commission and other agencies try to identify sponsorship. The Federal Trade Commission has developed rules for influencers uh, uh, so that when somebody holds up a purse on Instagram, uh, the notion that they have to say, hey, by the way, I got paid $1,000 to do this, uh, that really is, is sort of modeled on the way we, we, we've treated the broadcasting. so-called payola and plugola right. uh, regulations right. for broadcasting. And, and then the special rules for political broadcasting, the so-called equal time, which is really equal opportunities, uh, and, um, and, and the, the sponsorship identification. And there, that has served a very useful role. And some of that applies to cable uh, 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 as well. Um, the disclosure part, uh, uh, I'm so-and-so and I paid for this ad, uh, has had a modest beneficial effect in that the really nasty attack ads now are not done by the candidates themselves and has served as some constraint on uh, on the devolution of, of, of uh, a political debate. And it also has a disclosure function. The Federal Election Commission has struggled to figure out a way to get that kind of disclosure available for online political advertising. And they're, since they're inevitably deadlocked uh, because of the Congress has intended it to be deadlocked, it's it's six members at full strength. So it's a three to three tie on, on most important issues. And of course now uh, it doesn't even have a quorum. It's only got two commissioners so they can't vote to do anything anyway. Right. Put that aside. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, we fought successfully uh, for years to get the political file information, who bought ads and how much they paid for them readily available online rather than having to go to, to station files to look at it. And uh, I'm sure almost everybody in the room has seen articles saying that such and such a candidate has bought 
$85,000 worth of airtime to promote this candidacy, or on the referendum campaign, they bought such and such. That disclosure, which journalists use to help inform the public, comes out of the broadcasters and the cable companies' public files. So that's a very useful, important form of regulation. This is not particularly burdensome. Uh, actually, broadcasters complained they didn't want to have the stuff go online, but it turned out, one, and they, they filed a litigation in the DC circuit, which was then stayed, and after two years, they dropped the litigation because they decided they really liked it. It was a lot easier than having people come to the station. Uh, uh, so that, it, it, that's not particularly burdensome. The advertiser is supposed to fill out a form and they scan it and post it online. It's not exactly a heavy burden. So the, so the amount of regulatory burden that broadcasters face is, is really quite minimal. Uh, once every eight years, they have to file a pro forma renewal application. The, the, the form is two pages. Okay. So I, you know, I note that, that you didn't really completely answer my oh, question, though, I'm which sorry. was the justification part. I mean, is the justification still there? Because presumably, if, if the justification is there and you were running the show, so to speak, in terms of media policy, you would want more regulation for broadcasting. Uh, well, if first, if we have an, if, do we have an adequate peg for regulatory authority? The answer is unequivocally yes. Uh, it still hasn't changed from 1927, uh, which is that over-the-air broadcasters get a license free of charge to use spectrum owned by the public in exchange for what used to be a lot of public service and now, as I've been describing, is a modicum of public service. Uh, so, so, you know, there's, there's an adequate uh, regulatory peg for that. And is the spectrum valuable? Do they want it? Well, yes. We just um, uh, had the second spectrum auction of over-the-air television uh, spectrum. Uh, the first one was to move, move them all uh, 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 repack them digitally in 2008 uh, by transitioning to digital television to free up a, a, a huge chunk of spectrum, which was then sold for, uh, for primo uh, 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 wireless service. And the second tranche of spectrum, which was uh, uh, done in an auction last year, year before last year now, uh, was an incentive auction in which we speaking loosely here, but not inaccurately, bribed uh, incumbent broadcasters to either keep their spectrum and stay the way they were or sell it and either combine with somebody else on a transmitter or go away. And, and you know, a few marginal stations, not many, decided to just sell the spectrum and go away. Uh, but, but you know, the, the value of that spectrum and the fact that we had to pay them to use the spectrum that they got for free and that we theoretically own and we had to pay them to get back our own spectrum mm -hmm. so we could then resell the license say, for it establishes the value, okay? Well, you say we theoretically own it because the Communications Act makes it clear, right, that broadcasters don't have a property interest right. in these frequencies. Right, section 304 of the Communications Act, I think it's 304, uh, provides, and every application for a spectrum license has at the bottom a waiver in which the applicant disclaims any property interest in the spectrum. 
So, so certainly we have the authority to regulate more strongly than we would for other media based on, based on, on that. We've got so many different outlets and so many different sources and you know, Netflix has 85 gazillion things that are available on demand, so why do we need to regulate it is a somewhat different question and there I would argue yes, having some modicum, and they don't have much, but having some modicum of requirement that they meet the needs of children and that they demonstrate in some way that they're serving local needs, which basically is, they could say almost anything, uh, I think that's, that's a useful, valuable uh, 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 quid for the pro quo. Mm -hmm. What percentage of viewers and households uh, get their over-the-air broadcast television through retransmission? You know, either through a cable provider or a satellite provider. Well, the number, of course, is going down. Uh, and there is the cord cutting. And the sales of over-the-air antennas, good ones, have actually gone up. Right, so they're working now. Uh, so, uh, 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 so more and more, ooh, the digital does work better. So more and more, more people are getting that way. And we... Um, uh, we are transitioning after years of saying that uh, the cable bundle uh, uh, really was very hard to break and, and, and the, uh, be thinking about the enduring uh, uh, ability of, of, of the cable television operators to, to extort uh, uh, revenue from people who really don't care about sports having to pay for ESPN and people who really don't care about uh, uh, reality shows uh, about houses having to pay for a TLC or Discovery Channel or whatever, uh, that may, we may come to a tipping point at some point where these skinny bundles that are starting to appear will actually take over. And it may well be eventually we can move certainly the television uh, 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 off of the over-the-air spectrum and turn that over for mobile. And, and there's a new modality that, that may facilitate that depending on how the litigation proceeds. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, I mean, would they care that much? I mean, so much of their revenue at uh, over-the-air broadcasters, especially uh, network O&Os owned and operated in affiliate stations that, that uh, have strong, large audiences, so much of that revenue comes from retransmission, retransmission consent fees. I mean, well, do they, it's nowhere near as much as, as, as the advertising. If you but they're at, still selling the advertising. Right. It's a and, second and, revenue right, stream. Second they're getting revenue all stream. that, yeah. they're getting eyes on the screen, but unlike the way it was 50 years ago, they're getting a second revenue stream for their eyes that they right. used to not get any additional revenue for. Well, the fact that the cable DBS operators are willing to pay for it uh, reflects their belief that, that their customers want it. Uh, and and you know, again, that, that's the measure of the value. That's why they've been able to, in my word, extort this retransmission consent revenue. Uh, uh, reflects an ongoing interest in, in, in whatever it is that they're doing. Do we need so, I mean, you mentioned a couple of times now uh, 
spectrum reallocation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in this uh, specifically taking the spectrum very generous grant of of spectrum for digital television uh, and maybe reallocating it for 5G or 6G, whatever the Gs really mean, as we'll, we might get to that shortly. But the idea of reallocating it to your mobile phones. Do they, you know, is there a middle ground? Do they need so much spectrum? Could they just operate low power frequencies in a low, uh, with low power and a, a small bandwidth and get the job done given that there is so much retransmission consent and there's also low cast, which we can get to as well. I mean, is that a way forward? Maybe they just need a tenth of the spectrum that they're getting now. Well, yes. Eventually, yes, the short answer is yes. Uh, but um, uh, the, the ubiquity, uh, the public safety ability to communicate with everybody over the air and emergencies and so forth, which the broadcasters make too big a deal about, is nonetheless important. Uh, and uh, here, too, I think we need to distinguish between radio. There's no real demand for the AM, FM bands for much of anything else. Uh, uh, but the, um, uh, the television spectrum at some point may be sufficiently valued that we may want to incent them to go away completely and, and supplant it with some sort of uh, a, approach that delivers that kind of programming in a different way. But what I would be concerned about is what we started with. If we repurpose that spectrum in a way and go completely over the top, are we going to have local news and journalism? Are we going to have local sports? Is there going to be a market for that uh, uh, if, if the Netflixes of the world can outbid these other people for, for these opportunities? And, and a public policy that makes sure we have some uh, coverage of local issues and needs is, is a good public policy. Mm. It, tell me about low cast. Is low cast part of this equation? Well, it's early on, and, and it may not be, but it's an interesting insight into, into how things might proceed way down the line in the future. Well, explain what low cast okay. is, because this is something that a colleague of yours at Georgetown. A, a friend developed. of mine who's an adjunct at Georgetown uh, uh, was teaching the Aereo case to his class. This was the case from several years ago. An amicus project amicus briefcase as well um, that we did at Southwestern. In which uh, this uh, startup uh, uh, got patented a uh, system with these tiny little, literally dime-sized antenna that could pick up all the over-the-air television stations. They have a ray of a couple thousand of these on the roof of a building uh, near downtown. Uh, <coughs> And then um, uh, uh, a subscriber could have one of those antennae dedicated to them. So every one of the 10,000 would, would, be, would be dedicated to one of the users. And they could then access that antenna 
over the line through a Roku box or whatever, uh, and they could get all the local over-the-air television stations that way. Uh, the Supreme Court, uh, in its wisdom, ruled that violated the Copyright Act. But, uh, so my friend, David Goodfriend, was teaching the Aereo case, and a student asked a very perceptive question about a provision in the Copyright Act that exempts nonprofits from the copyright liability. And the light bulb went off, which is that if Aereo had been a nonprofit, it would qualify for that exemption. So he set up a nonprofit called Locast. And he's now operating in 16 or 18 cities, including Los Angeles. And you can download the Locast app on your Roku box or on your phone. Uh, and they hit you up like public television for a $5 a month donation if you wish. Uh, and if you don't wish, every 15 minutes they there's a pop-up that invites you to donate your $5. Mm -hmm. Now, whether this is contributory infringement or not, uh, since this is going on the podcast, that's a question for another day. Exactly. But the... the and, and, right. and, and, and he started this up uh, and waited for the networks to sue. And they didn't sue. And they didn't sue for two years. Then a couple months ago, they sued. Uh, I don't know, really don't quite understand what they were scared of uh, losing, I guess, but they... Called money. Yeah. They, I mean, they want to control this, and they also don't want to, they, they don't want to, they see a slippery slope yeah. so, uh, where they're going to yeah. basically not be able to get retransmission consent. Enough people, I mean, if you think about it, if you're already a cord cutter, one of the biggest problems is you can't get broadcasting. Right. So companies like Sling say, go to Locast. Right. Why? Because you don't have to pay. Uh, the problem with Aereo was that because the law changed with the 1976 Act, the Copyright Act, you, you, you couldn't have a simultaneous retransmission of the broadcast signal without it violating the Copyright Act. And so that's the loophole, and it remains to be seen whether this is a case that's going to move up the courts into the Supreme Court. So if, if Locast were to prevail, uh, it would open up an opportunity for more of these skinny bundle uh, 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 services that would would offer you the MSNBC and CNBC and FX and so forth channels without having to buy the sports if you were not into the sports or without having to buy uh, the cartoons if you're not into the cartoons or whatever and true a la carte uh, kind of, of, of opportunities. That's one possibility. The other possibility if Locast prevails is that the broadcasters will go get the copyright law changed, which they probably have the clout to do. Uh, so uh, uh, if I were backing Locast, uh, uh, 
I would, I would assume that their long-term prospects are not guaranteed, one, either legislatively or judiciously, judicially, but it does offer uh, an insight into the possibility that at some point down the road, we really are going to, uh, uh, to obviate the need, certainly for over-the-air television, and it really can go online, which would be much more efficient. But I think we'll have to see, but I think we're talking uh, many, many years down the road before that comes to pass. Okay. Uh, let's talk about online video distribution. Should there be public interest requirements for OBDs, for the Netflixes, the... Uh, I just don't think HBO it's... I just don't think it's workable. The cost-benefit of the innovation and, and the flexibility that comes from that against some sort of regulatory scheme, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't think is, 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 is worth it. So where do, where but, do kids... But do again, that's because it's national. If, 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 if we removed this local component, I think we have a public policy uh, imperative of maintaining some sort of local media infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, if we have to stimulate that in some way, if we move, uh, if we cut all the cords, uh, uh, if, if we move in that direction, we will have to do something. Now, this is very far afield from what we're talking about, but I have a bunch of friends who are working on how you create new and different forms of local media, and that, that's a very interesting discussion. And there are, uh, uh, you know, the models of having rich people, as in the LA Times, just do it as a benefit act of beneficence or, or you know, not expecting to, to do much more than break even. Uh, is one thing, but we're talking more about benefit corporations, uh, uh, low profit or, or uh, uh, slightly profitable companies, and uh, New Jersey has passed a statute which really funds local media from state funds to create local for-profit media. Uh, so we are, and Frank Blethen, who's the publisher of the Seattle Times, is actively exploring ways to create new forms of local media. So we, we you know, this is not a regulatory discussion, uh, but there is a sense that with the demise of newspapers and, and some diminution of, 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 of the other sources of local media, we need to figure out new, model, new business and, 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 and uh, 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 operative models for preserving this all-important function of informing the public about news and information about their communities that is not going to come through a Roku box. The, you know, I get the sense that over the long term you see the hearts and minds of viewers and audiences going online for streaming for maybe everything except the sort of market, more market-challenged uh, local content. Uh, but if there is a transition, a transition well underway now to get our entertainment and get a lot of our information from the internet, is 
the situation with net neutrality really, well, we had a crossroads. Is, it, is, is the loss of net neutrality a major factor um, for how we're going to consume content in the future? Well, first of all, um, the real answer is who the hell knows, right? Uh, my beloved spouse, Linda, who's sitting up front here, uh, sometimes asks me a question uh, that I can't possibly know the answer to, and, and, and I will say, who am I, Kreskin? Which dates me. I date you. Um, uh, but um, uh, my own guess, and it's nothing more than a guess, uh, is that the durability of the local broadcast media is underestimated and that uh, it will continue to be viable and profitable in the case of the uh, nonprofits, the public radio and the public television stations functional for a very long time to come. Certainly the cost of licenses that right. still remain, the right. high cost of right. licenses. The market so values them at this point, they could be wrong. Bear that, bear that. But, right. you know, I, I said my, in the long term, though, yeah. we seem to be moving into a different platform. Yeah, but is that, how quickly? My guess is very, very, very slowly. I'm not in the business, it's not my money. Uh, but, um, you know, there are a bunch of people betting the same way I am and a bunch of people betting the other way. We'll just have to see. I really don't know the answer. Now, to go to your question, uh, I am reasonably satisfied in my own mind uh, that we are going to get, whether it is strong enough for my taste or not, some legislated protection for network neutrality. You mean Congress will finally Congress act? Congress will, will ultimately act, and if they don't, eventually the FCC will adopt something that, that, uh, you know, that will provide some protection. And, and the basic reason for that, and this is what I was discussing in class today, is that the general public doesn't necessarily understand the details. They certainly don't understand uh, the issue of whether uh, the definition of broadband internet access service under the definitions of section 153 of the Communications Act uh, uh, for information services and telecommunications services are ambiguous or not and all that kind of stuff. They certainly don't understand that. They don't fully understand the provisions of net neutrality, but they understand it's important. And there are very few issues where there is such a broad public consensus. When John Oliver stimulated a broad public response to that, that's because he was pushing on an open door. Uh, at the gut level, people understand that this is important. They understand they don't trust the cable company. They don't expect the cable company to show up between 2 and 5 tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> uh, and, when, and they don't trust them 
to make sure that they're going to get everything they're going to get and not have it screwed around with the same for the phone companies. And there's enough track record of them trying to, they don't want to be exploited. They don't, they understand the notion that somehow if Target's website is loading more slowly than Walmart's website, that's not good. Yeah, you can argue on the other end, there's some consumer benefits that they may be able to do and so forth, but at a gut level, the public understands that that's important. And I do think that uh, net neutrality uh, uh, will be attained sooner rather than later, legislatively or through a, through a sympathetic FCC. It will hold up in courts as it's held up already in courts if, if it goes that route. And, that, and, and that's going to happen. I'm, I'm quite confident of that. So you're, and I think it's critically important that it happens. So you're confident that you can depend upon the FCC in the wake of the Brand X case, which you were also uh, a lead attorney um, I, I have the scars of many lost cases. Uh, so tell us about the Brand X case, because it came up just uh, this fall in the Mozilla uh, case, uh, which was the latest case on net neutrality, which validated the rollback of the net neutrality rules that were enacted by the Obama FCC in 2015. Uh, I mean, can you, after Brand X, can you rely on the FCC for anything. Can't just a new FCC come in and then another FCC well, come yeah, in and, and undo it? The, yes, and that's the impetus for why we ultimately need a legislative solution. What the, the, the Supreme Court said in Brand X and what has been uh, 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 validated uh, in subsequent DC Circuit opinions uh, uh, is that the Communications Act and its in its present form is sufficiently broad that uh, an FCC decision creating net neutrality rules as was done in 2015 or repealing network neutrality rules as was done in 2018, uh, either way will stand. The, the uh, Communications Act is, as an old Supreme Court decision said, a supple instrument uh, and, uh, and, and the Communications Act will encompass either net neutrality or no net neutrality. So it becomes a policy decision of what's good. By the experts, which the FCC yeah. would be. Yeah. And um, uh, it affects the leverage that the different sides have in Congress. But while there is great disagreement about what legislation should say, there, if, there, if there is much of a consensus on anything in this area, it's a consensus that there should be legislation. And uh, sooner or later, one side or the other will, uh, the jockeying will end and we will get the legislation. Not gonna happen in 2020, uh, but it could happen in 2021, if not a couple, within a couple years after that. I, I'm pretty confident that's gonna happen. Well, it's interesting. Uh, again, you know, we don't have net neutrality as we speak, but it's not like our internet service has really changed at this point. I mean, your point about the market is well taken, although the market may change because, you know, online, if you're a sports network, for example, like the NFL, you don't have to, you know, make contracts with distributors uh, and share your revenue with them if you really 
want to, over time, you can develop your own streaming service. And there already have been some sports leagues that have been experimenting with that. Shouldn't it, if that's the case, then shouldn't an ISP say, well, so many of our customers are going to go and connect in using our service to that, that we should have them pay a higher price to be able to access these sports content? Well, uh, uh, a uh, absolutely wonderful fellow who uh, worked for me for a long time named Harold Feld uh, referred to this as Whitaker pricing because the then president of Southwestern Bell, which became AT&T, famously said, I'm going to let them use my goddamn pipes for nothing. Uh, it makes no sense. Uh, economically or policy-wise for a company whose business is sending bits back and forth to charge differently for it based on the value of it. As I was discussing uh, with, with my class, this is 500 years old. This is the innkeepers uh, who were charging merchants in, in England in, in you know, the, the 16th century they were sizing up what the value of the goods in the wagon were and charging them more to stay overnight in the inn based on the value of the goods in the wagon. And Parliament moved in and said, no. And that's common carriage then, and, and it's common carriage today. So I, I just don't think that, that that makes any policy sense. It doesn't really help. If they want to be in the business of moving bits, they're in the business of moving bits. If they want to be in the business of creating content, that's a different business. And I would prefer that Comcast wasn't doing both. I prefer that ATT wasn't doing both. Uh, uh, but they're not supposed to screw around and take advantage of that. And, and um, uh, I, don't think, I, I don't think that is viable as a public policy thing. And I don't think that the public will stand for it. So I have one more question before I open it up for some Q&A from the audience. What is 5G? Is it a real thing, or is it just marketing? Well, it is a real thing. It will be a real thing, and it will be ultimately a very important and useful thing. We, we can continue the trail of uh, taking advantage of improved technology and more and more computing power in order to do some really good, wonderful things. But the business model for 5G for everybody in this room, for residential wireless service, fixed wireless service, meaning uh, 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 to devices in your home, or mobile service, meaning your phone, the business model for that, for consumer use, is not there yet. And Wall Street is extremely skeptical about that happening sooner. Later, certainly, but sooner. The business model that's clear for 5G is an enterprise model for factories, for businesses, for autonomous vehicles. 
That's going to happen. There's a business model for that. But it's going to take a massive investment. The other piece of this, which is the spectrum piece of this, is what portion of the spectrum are you going to use? Now, T-Mobile is deploying, and you see them advertising, R5G is better because it travels longer and gets into your home and so forth, all of which is true because it's 600 megahertz spectrum. In fact, that is the first chunk of broadcast spectrum. It goes through walls. Yeah. It penetrates. It, it, it's the first ch ch uh, tranche of the broadcast spectrum that was uh, uh, taken back. It works great that way, but at that low frequency, uh, it doesn't offer really significantly improved speed. Verizon and AT&T have opted for higher frequencies, 25 megahertz and so forth, without getting into all the technical details. It's blazingly fast, but it doesn't penetrate through walls. Verizon is experimenting with the residential service in Sacramento. You have to hang an antenna outside your window in order to get your broadband. And even there, it's not working well. And you need these small cells all over the place, these small transmitters all over the place in order to do it. That business model is not there yet for some time It's expensive. It's, it's more, expensive. It's very more expensive cost for the power. And you still need the fiber because you have to deliver the fiber to every one of those transmitters. You still got to lay the fiber. So as long as you're laying that much fiber, it's not that, that hard to, to bring it into the home instead. Where much of the rest of the world has placed their focus is on the mid-band spectrum. And we don't have enough mid-band spectrum. We're trying very hard to change that and doing some things that they should have done beforehand to get some of the mid-band spectrum. It's the sweet spot for that. But we're not there yet. So uh, uh, the answer is no question we're going to have 5G. No question that it's really, really important. Uh, but. Uh, uh, its initial uses are unlikely to be what they're hyping it for, and part of the hyping is to get the regulatory relief to, 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 to get things going and, and to convince Congress to let everything get out of the way and let them get their hands on the spectrum, and then they may be sitting on it for a very long time before they can really exploit it. Uh, uh, so absolutely 5G, it will be really, really important, but I am in the group I'm not alone in this, who think that it's going to take a good bit longer to actually have widespread deployment than other people think. So maybe hold on to those 4G phones for a little while right. longer. Your 5G phone may be helpful if you, if you go to the Staples Center, you go to a football game or something where Verizon is deploying. There's a reason they're deploying them in stadiums because that's a small enclosed space where you don't have to go through walls. Um, uh, uh, so you can easily violate their copyright by, you know, and, and uh, by basically retransmitting uh, instantly. But, uh, uh, but your f Instagram works fine on 4G, <laughs> all right? Uh, so, so it's not as if there is some imperative. We absolutely have to see uh, the, the TikTok uh, uh, video in somewhat better, crisper, high-definition picture than we see it now. On that note, <laughs> I'd like to open it up for some questions that people might have. If you, if you do have a question, uh, just 
shout it out, say who you are if you'd like, know that you're being recorded, and I'll try to repeat it so that it's picked up on our microphone. Questions for Andy Schwartzman? Yes. Hi, my name is Dana. Um, I'm an attorney at Amazon, and um, um, my question's about the 5G, actually. Is that the reason why you can go and have a phone call in Japan and like go through a tunnel and it doesn't drop? Versus here, like I can't even drive home without the call dropping. So the question is, is, is 5G the reason cell phone calls, mobile phone calls don't drop? going through tunnels and other impeded areas? First of all, with respect to Amazon, <laughs> I think it is only a matter of time, maybe a relatively short time, before Amazon is in the uh, telecommunications business and, and offering uh, various enterprise and consumer services on mobile phones and so forth. I think it's just inevitable that, that as an infrastructure company, it makes perfect sense for them to be doing that. And I wouldn't be surprised if they bail out DISH and the Sprint T-Mobile merger deal or something like that and be in it pretty soon for what it's worth. It's just, it's just perfect fit for Amazon. But that's not your question. Uh, the answer to your question is very simple. I don't know. Uh, I just there there are two ways that you can get that service in the tunnel. One is if the, if they string some transmitters through there and and I forget the name of it. There's an inductive they can string a wire through a tunnel and uh, uh, and generate uh, a a signal. It functions like a kind of big transmitting antenna and and they do that in some places here. Yeah, they've done that in it, you know the Holland Tunnel and the Lincoln yeah. Tunnel. You can get service through it yeah. now. So, so either Chesapeake they do that, or they are using a uh, 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 a uh, pretty high frequency five uh, G signal pointed uh, on line of sight in the tunnel. And I just don't know the answer to that. But it's not the five G itself. It's really the question of the signal delivery. Yeah. Another question for Andy Schwartzman. Yes. I have a question about, you commented about low-cast and the use of off-air antennas to receive local broadcast channels. How long do you think it'll take before consumers start adopting the use of low-cast and going back to the use of off-air antennas to receive local channels rather than through digital transmission through a cable so how long do you think till it low cast penetrates the marketplace to become the next big thing? Well, as we alluded to before, it is slowly happening. Uh, and I think that trend will continue. Uh, which, by the way, contributes to the long-term viability of broadcasting, as we were talking about before. But I have no idea. Uh, what am I, Kreskin? Um, uh, I have no idea if it's one year, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. I just don't know. I, not my department. One last question. Um, so with the push of, you know, we were talking about advertising from broadcast, which is going that nationwide into more localized, um, uh, more personalized uh, online ad campaigns, are you at all concerned with the lack of regulation for propaganda purposes, it's easier to hide behind, you know, an ad targeting me mm -hmm. locally 
than it is uh, on an actual nationwide. So, so the, this question is one that we actually, if we had had more time, we would have talked more about, but it really relates to Section 230 and social media networks liability or the lack of liability of part of social media networks for propaganda or fake news uh, that is posted um, on, on a social media site. So I don't know, in 30 seconds or less, can you answer his question? Uh, the answer to my mind is unquestionably we need to address this as a pressing issue of our time. However, if it, it is not a, strictly speaking, a telecommunications issue, this is not something that I want the FCC or a telecommunications regulator to be doing. The problem is that we do not have an expert agency equipped with the right kind of tools those tools don't really exist yet, to do it. We need a new and different agency. Maybe it is a greatly expanded Federal Trade Commission. Maybe it is a greatly uh, expanded and empowered Federal Election Commission. Or maybe it is some sort of new agency that has expertise to try to deal with the really complicated questions of technology and First Amendment and editorial control and technology and AI and, and all of that, but it's not for the FCC. I would not want to take existing FCC Telecommunications Act law and try to stretch it or amend that model to deal with it. It's a completely different medium. This is not sending bits from point A to point B, which is really what the FCC's basic focus is. Well, thank you. Andy, uh, Thank you, it's a great personal privilege. You, you have mentioned the amazing Kreskin a couple times, uh, a uh, personality from the 1950s, 50s, yeah. 60s, and 70s who did mind-bending magic tricks. Uh, you're not the amazing Kreskin, but you're half that, you're amazing. Thank you very much for being here with us tonight. Thank you for listening to A Conversation with Podcast, hosted by Southwestern Law School's Biederman Institute. This series is generously supported by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. For more information, check out the links in the show notes. You can also find information about upcoming conversations at www.swlaw.edu. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear new episodes. We hope to have you back again for more conversations. Bye until the next time.